get this started then? Jewish, a Jewish audience, seeking to compel them to stay faithful to Jesus or maybe even to initially put their faith in Jesus for the very first time. It, it appears that the question he was really going after was, if Jesus is the Messiah, where then is the kingdom? Many Jewish people would have been asking that. If Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, where's the kingdom? Matthew writes to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament promise. He has inaugurated the kingdom, and one day he will bring it in fullness. He starts with a genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. He starts off from the very beginning tying Jesus back to Old Testament promise. One of the common phrases used in the Gospel of Matthew is, this happened in order to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. This happened in order to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Time and time again, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament promise. He is the Messiah who has inaugurated the kingdom and will return again to bring it into fullness. Mark, it appears, was written from Rome to suffering Christians. And it appears in Mark's gospel, he is presenting Jesus as the quintessential disciple who always follows God's way faithfully, even if it leads to suffering and death. In Mark's gospel, you have, on the one hand, the leadership within Israel who never go God's way. You have Jesus, who always goes God's way. And then you have this group in the middle, the disciples, who sometimes they go God's way and sometimes they don't. They're kind of the main characters, if you will, within the story as their faith is developing as to what it looks like to be a faithful disciple. What it looks like is Jesus. He always obeys God's will. And what it looks like in the Gospel of Mark is a life of service that may well get you killed. That's what it looks like to follow God, is to lay your life down for the sake of others. But don't worry. Jesus laid down his life for others. It got him killed, but God raised him from the dead. So you suffering Christians in Rome, you suffering Christians in Memphis, Tennessee, you suffering Christians wherever you might be, that's what it looks like, is a life of service to others for which you might have to suffer and even die, but don't worry. God will raise you from the dead as well in victory. Luke writing to a fellow named Theophilus. We're not exactly sure about Theophilus, but it appears that he was a Roman official who had come to put his faith in Jesus or was really considering it, but who knew he had a lot to lose. He had a place of great prominence as a Roman official. That would have given him great influence within the city and even the empire. 
would have come with great wealth. He had certainly friends in high places. And if he goes all in with Jesus, he could lose it all. And many believe that what he did was he, in being introduced to Luke, said, hey, Luke, I'm going to support you. I've got the financial means. I want to give you the time. You've got the expertise. You've got the relationships. I want you to to research this thing to the bottom of it. And I want you to tell me exactly what happened. If I'm going to go all in, I've got to know. And so Luke does his best, he tells us in the early verses of chapter 1, to talk to the eyewitnesses, to research this, and to lay it out for Theophilus in consecutive order so that he could know exactly what happened. One of the highlights of Luke's gospel is that Jesus is not only the Savior of Israel, but he's the Savior of the entire world. The Gospel of John is a little bit different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are sometimes lumped together and called the synoptic Gospels, optic to see, sin to see together. A lot of what you'll read in Matthew, you'll find in Mark and Luke, and vice versa. But if I remember right, 92% of the Gospel of John is unique. You won't find it in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And while Matthew takes his genealogy back to Abraham and David, and Luke takes his genealogy even all the way back to Adam, here's how John starts his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He goes way back, right, to show that the Word was with God from the very beginning. And then he says in chapter 1, verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, meaning who's in close relationship to the Father. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. John says, whenever the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, he explains to us exactly who God is. John's gospel contains the great I am statements of Jesus. Seven of them. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection from the dead. I am the light of the world. I am the bread that has come down from heaven. I am the chief shepherd contains seven signs, miracles, that John says display his glory. Changing the water into wine, healing the lame man at Bethesda, raising Lazarus from the dead. And John comes to the end of the book and says, hey, the things this man did, no library could contain it. But I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing, you'll have life in his name. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different authors 
to four different audiences, but together they illuminate for us the majesty, the wonder of our Savior Jesus Christ. Now, number 16, the book of Acts. Remember, this picks up where the Gospels leave off. And again, it's, it's Luke volume 2. It too is addressed to that fellow Theophilus. And it tells us what happened after Jesus ascended into heaven. And what we find is that the book of Acts is about the spread of the church from its birth and expansion within Jerusalem to its extension into Judea and Samaria, to Antioch, to Asia Minor, to the Aegean Sea region, and all the way to Rome. And, and each time along the way, Luke gives us a progress report to tell us how things are going. Let me show you this on a map. It starts down here in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's spending time with his disciples. He's teaching them about the kingdom. And they say to him, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were hoping that was going to you know, kind of happen earlier and his death on the cross kind of put an end to their hopes and expectations. But now that he's alive again, maybe now's the time. Jesus is in at this time. And he says, listen, that's not for you to know. But here's what I want you to know. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. And then he ascends into heaven. They go to Jerusalem and they wait and they pray. And in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Peter's given an opportunity to preach. 3,000 people believe. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to the breaking of bread, to worshiping. And the Lord is adding to their number every day. In Acts chapter 2, verse 43, we get our first progress report from Luke. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The church is birthed in Jerusalem. Chapter 3 through 6, 7 is going to expand within Jerusalem. Peter and John heal a lame man. The crowds come running. Peter gets to preaching. The people are thinking this is great, but the leadership in Israel does not like it. And in chapter 4, they take Peter and John. They arrest them, bring them in. In whose name are you doing this? It's the name of Jesus. There's no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. Hey, you can't preach in this name anymore. Listen, you be the judge. we got to keep preaching. You better not or else. And he let them go. They went back to their friends, their companions, and said, here's what they told us. They told us to shut up. Let's pray and ask God to give us boldness. And so they prayed. God heard their prayer. And they kept preaching. And in chapter 5, more and more and more people are coming to know Jesus. And the leadership takes Peter, John, the other apostles, brings them in. We told you not to preach in this name anymore. And yet you are filling this city with this teaching. It's beginning to expand. This time, they flogged them, they beat them, and let them go. And the Bible says that they left in joy because they'd been considered worthy to suffer for Jesus' sake. This section comes to a close in 6-7, and Luke tells us this. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. There's the summary. And Luke says, even some of the priests are coming to faith. 
So it's been birthed within Jerusalem, and now it's filling the whole city such that even some of the priests are believing. Well, in chapter 7, Stephen preaches. They don't like it. This time they don't warn Stephen and they don't flog Stephen. They stone Stephen to death. And because of that, a great persecution begins in Jerusalem and Christians flee into the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. And guess what they do as they go? They preach. Judea and Samaria, Judea surrounds Jerusalem and then Samaria is just north. And they take the gospel in 6-8 all the way down through 9-31 into Judea and Samaria. And Luke summarizes it at the end. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. From here, the church spreads all the way up to Antioch. Peter receives his vision about the unclean animals that came down and he was told to kill and eat. And he says, I never eat anything unclean. And God says to him, what I've considered clean, don't you consider unclean? It's that whole story of Cornelius and the Gentiles coming to Jesus. And God giving his Holy Spirit to the Gentiles, just like he had given to the Jews. And the leadership in Israel have, and in Jerusalem having to wrestle with that, but they come to chapter 11, verse 18, and they say, well, surely God is bringing salvation to the Gentiles also. And a church is planted way up here in Antioch. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles together. And at the end of this section, Luke says, 1224, the word of God increased and multiplied. Then it's time for the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, and he takes the gospel into Asia Minor. Pisidia, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. Into these cities, we'll look at a little bit more detail in just a bit. When this section comes to an end, Luke sums it up. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. From here, we're going to take it to the Aegean Sea and to all of the cities, the major cities surrounding this area of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth and then eventually Ephesus, all around the Aegean Sea. And when that section is finished in 1920, Luke tells us, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And then Paul sets his sights to go all the way to Rome. And he gets there, not as he had wished. He goes as a prisoner. But when the book comes to a close in 28, 30, and 31, Paul lived there two whole years at his own, rented, at his own expense, welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's the book of Acts. What happened after Jesus ascended? He sent his spirit who empowered the people and they took the gospel into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Antioch, Asia Minor, Aegean Sea, all the way to Rome. do with 
Paul's letters. Paul's letters are best understood in their historical context. I don't know if you know it, but in your Bible, Paul's letters are arranged from longest to shortest. I think it's tons of fun and very helpful to put them into their context, into Paul's life and ministry. And I'll show it to you quickly here, and then we're going to walk through it. After his first journey, he wrote Galatians. During his second, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. During his third, 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Romans. His fourth, as, an, as a prisoner in Rome, he wrote four books, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. He then got out of prison, wrote 1st Timothy and Titus, went back into prison, and wrote 2nd Timothy. Watch this. Here's Paul's first journey. Here's Jerusalem, and here's Antioch. It's now Acts chapter 13. The leaders in the church in Antioch are praying. And the Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have for them. Saul is the Apostle Paul. So they went on their first missionary journey to the island of Cyprus. This little city of Salamis and across to Paphos and then up into Asia Minor. little port city of Perga. Pisidian Antioch where Paul and Barnabas went into the synagogue there and they were given opportunity to preach they preached and some believed some didn't chased Paul and Barnabas out of town they came to Iconium and then on to Lystra Lystra is where um, Paul healed that uh, fellow and they began to worship Barnabas as Zeus and Paul as Hermes and Paul and Barnabas were saying no 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 we're just men just like you Jesus did this. And then they stone him nearly to death. I mean, it's almost like from one verse to the next, they're falling down, worshiping them as gods, and in the next verse, they're trying to stone him to death. From there on to Derby. After making it to Derby, they then made their way back to each of these cities, strengthening the people. And then eventually came back to Antioch. Now, Paul's been on this first missionary journey. Into Pisidia, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, preaching Christ. Many are believing. Churches are being planted. On his follow-up, whenever they went back and visited these places, they appointed elders in these churches. This is great stuff. When Paul made it back to Antioch, though, he heard word that some false teachers had come in after him and had begun to lead the people astray calling into question his authority as an apostle and calling into question his gospel of God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And some of the people were being led astray. So Paul picked up his pen and he wrote a letter. We know it as Galatians. It's the only letter that we have of Paul in which he does not offer thanks to God for his readers. Yikes. And all the others, even the crazy Corinthians, I thank God for you, not the Galatians. Here's how the book feels. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only some are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached, let him be accursed. Chapter 3. You foolish Galatians. 
before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Who has bewitched you? Chapter 4. I wish I could come to you and change my tone. Chapter 6. Let no one disregard me. I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. What he probably means is the scars from his stoning in Lystra when he was among them. Go home tonight or tomorrow and read Galatians. And think. He was just there. He had just preached Christ and many of them had believed. Churches had been planted. Leadership appointed. And then not long after he hears word that everything is falling apart. And then read Galatians. Six chapters take you 20-25 minutes to read through it. Maybe not even that long. You won't get it all. But you'll begin to feel this book. So, after his first journey, Paul wrote Galatians. He then went on a second missionary journey from Antioch. This time they're going to head this way. Derby, Lystra. He picks up Timothy here. Iconium, city, Antioch. Then he starts heading west, probably wants to go to Ephesus, but God says no. Turns north to go into Bithynia, but God says no. Comes to Troas, and this is where he receives his Macedonian call. He has a vision at night, a man from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke at this point take a boat over to Philippi. And there in Philippi, he leads Lydia to Christ. The Lord opened the heart of Lydia to respond to the things spoken by Paul. He, it appears, leads a slave girl to Christ. He gets thrown in prison, leads the Philippian jailer and his family to Christ. He's eventually run out of town and he comes to Thessalonica. And there he preaches Christ and some believe and some don't. And persecution gets hot and they chase him out of town. He comes down to Berea. This is the noble-minded Bereans who search the scripture to see if these things are so. Paul would preach and they'd get out their Old Testament, you know. Let's make sure and see if he's got it right. Then Paul came down to Athens. He had to come alone, but he said to Timothy and Silas, you get here as quickly as you can. And this is when he came into Athens and saw all of those idols. And it pained him that there was all of that worship, but not the worship of King Jesus. And he began to do evangelism and preach Christ and lead people to faith Silas and Timothy eventually came down to Athens and met him. And Paul had been trying to get back to the Thessalonians, but for some reason he couldn't. And so he said to Timothy, hey, Timothy, I want you to go to Thessalonica and check on them. See how they're doing and then meet me in Corinth. I'm going to go on down to Corinth. So Timothy heads up to Thessalonica, checks on them, comes down and meets Paul in Corinth and says... It appears, Paul, they're doing great. Their faith in Christ is showing itself in, in new life that they're living. Their love for others is just amazing. I mean, they are laboring to love others. Their hope in Christ is strong. They are going through difficult times, but they are staying the course. Now, Paul, there are some in Thessalonica who are questioning you, questioning your motives when you were among us, among them. 
They're questioning your message. They're questioning your love for the Thessalonians, why you haven't come back to see them. And then they've got some issues you would probably want to speak to. They've got questions regarding sexual immorality. They've got questions regarding some of their Christian friends who have died. And so from Corinth, Paul writes 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, where to go? Your, your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope is just awesome. The word of God is sounding forth from you. Way to go. Chapter 2, Paul is somewhat defending his ministry. And the key phrase throughout chapter 2 is, as you know, as you know, as you know. He's appealing to their own experience. That when I was with you, as you know, I wasn't there for greed. When I was with you, as you know, I was among you as, as a nursing mother is with her children, as a father is with his children. When he's appealing to something that they, they couldn't have known, he says this twice. God is witness. God is witness. Later in chapter 2, he says, I wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted me. For who is my hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not you? Chapter 3, he said, when I could endure it no longer, I sent Timothy to see how you're doing. And now that he's come to me and given me this report, it just fills my heart with joy. Chapter 4, now concerning sexual immorality. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Concerning your friends that have fallen asleep in Jesus. Don't, don't grieve as those who don't have any hope. For the dead in Christ shall rise first. Comfort one another with these words. Chapter 5, he addresses more of the issues going on in the church. So he writes that letter, he sends it with Timothy back to Thessalonica. He then comes back to Corinth, Timothy does, and says they've got more questions. They've got more issues. And so Paul writes 2 Thessalonians. So during this second journey, Paul writes 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. We're going to start moving quicker, but here's the point. Sometimes we can, we can think that, you know, these letters that Paul wrote, you know, he's a theologian sitting up in some office somewhere in Jerusalem. You know, he's got his books on the shelf. He's got his coffee right there. Maybe he's got his laptop going. Not at all, right? These letters are born out of frontline missionary pastoral work. Galatians comes out of the heart of an apostle who's pained that false teaching is leading his disciples astray. First Thessalonians comes out of this report of they're doing good, but they've got this. Second Thessalonians comes out of very practical questions they've got about the end times, but how that affects them even today. Paul eventually makes his way over to Ephesus, back to Jerusalem, and then back to Antioch. And so on this second journey, he wrote 1 and 2 Thessalonians. He then went on a third missionary journey. This time, he goes all the way to Ephesus. He spends two years here in Ephesus. And during this time, he puts together a discipleship program. And 
guys are coming to him and he's teaching them the word of God and he is sending them out. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 20 that during this time, all of Asia, that's the phrase he used, all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Paul is building in to these men, training them up and sending out church planters to take the gospel as far as they will. During this time, Paul begins a correspondence with the Corinthians. He wrote a letter to them that we don't have in our Bible. He then had a group of folks from Corinth come and visit him in Ephesus and tell him some of the issues that were going on in, in Corinth and also deliver a letter to him that had a bunch of questions in it. And from Ephesus, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, addressing the disunity and the disharmony in the church, addressing some of the issues they had suing one another within the body of Christ. And then in chapter 7 through the end of the book, he takes up their questions. The key phrase throughout the latter part of the book is now concerning, now concerning, now concerning, now concerning. The things which you wrote, the questions that they had. He sent that letter on to the Corinthians. And then, we don't read about this in the book of Acts, we have to try and piece it together. It appears that during this time, he took a short trip over to Corinth, and when he was there, something happened that hurt him deeply. It appears it was at some sort of church meeting. Opponents of his stood up and made accusations against him, and nobody within the church stood up in his defense. Paul left, came back to Ephesus, and wrote what we call the sorrowful letter. We don't have that one either. He describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and says that he wrote it with many tears out of great anguish of heart. He wrote that sorrowful letter and he sent it with Titus. He said, Titus, take this letter and then meet me in Troas. So Paul goes up to Troas to try and find Titus to hear how they've responded to this sorrowful letter. Because this relationship is paining him. He can't find Titus. He says in 2 Corinthians 2 that God had opened up a door for him in Troas for ministry, but not finding Titus, I went on to Macedonia. He was so longing to hear. And so he left Troas, came to Macedonia. We're not sure where, Philippi, Thessalonica. And he met up with Titus. And Titus gave him a good report that they responded well to his sorrowful letter. And so from Macedonia, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, affirming their response to his letter, encouraging them, having kind of gotten that issue dealt with, to make good on their intention to give a financial gift to the Jerusalem church. Paul was picking up financial gifts from all of these churches in Macedonia and Achaia, which is down here. And so in chapters 8 and 9, he's encouraging them to make good on a promise that they had made to help in that effort. So he writes 2 Corinthians, sends it on ahead, and then eventually makes his way down there, collecting the money, and eventually comes to Corinth. He's reunited with his church. This relationship has is in a much better place. 
He's collected the money to take back to Jerusalem, and he wants to go to Rome. From Corinth, he writes Romans. It's the, if you will, the granddaddy of them all. You know, if you can only take one book to a deserted island, you take your Bible. If you can only take one book of your Bible, you probably take Romans. Paul had never been to this church. There was already a church there. Probably he wants to establish Rome as the next center of missionary activity. The early days had been Jerusalem. Then it had been Antioch. It had now been Ephesus. Now he wants it to be Rome because he says, I want to come see you and be helped by you on my way to Spain. Paul is now in his 60s, most likely. And he is pressing on. He says in Romans chapter 15, I want to preach Christ, not where he's already been named. He wants to go to new places and tell new people about Jesus. He's an apostle. So from Corinth, he writes Romans. He wants to head back to Jerusalem, but he finds that there is a plot on his life, and so he has to take a different track going back. Comes back to Troas. That's when he preaches all night. The little boy falls out of the window and dies. Paul has to go raise him from the dead. Comes down just south of Ephesus and meets with the elders from the church in Ephesus. Great reading in Acts chapter 20, 21. He thinks maybe he'll never see him again. And so what he says to them is just filled with passion. He then comes to Jerusalem. So this was the third journey, and on that journey he wrote 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Romans. Now, when he got back to Jerusalem, his hope was to deliver the money and then head to Rome. But he got arrested. In Jerusalem, he got arrested. They actually put him in prison in Caesarea, which is not terribly far from Jerusalem, and he had to sit in prison for two years. Makes his defense before Felix, before Festus, before Agrippa. They threatened to bring him back to Jerusalem to stand trial, and he knew, if I go to Jerusalem, no chance of a fair trial. And so, as a Roman citizen, he appeals to to Caesar, which means he's going to Rome. Acts 27, they put him on a boat that takes him all the way to Rome. And that's where we find him at the end of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 28. Two years in prison in Rome. And during this imprisonment, Paul writes four books, probably in this order. He writes Ephesians, which would come to the church in Ephesus here and probably was meant to be passed around to other churches in the area. He would also write during this time the book of Colossians. Colossae is over in this area. This was a church he'd never been to, but he knew a lot about it. He also writes the book of Philemon. Philemon was one of the leaders in the Colossae church. He had a slave named Onesimus who ran away. Crossed paths with the apostle Paul, it appears, in Rome. Paul led him to faith. and Paul said, you got to go back. And so he writes this letter to Philemon. It's one chapter long. You can read it in about 42 seconds. Urging Philemon to receive Onesimus no longer as a slave, but as a brother. Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, and then Philippians. 
Philippians written to the church here in Philippi, essentially a thank you letter for their incredible generosity to him over all the years of his ministry. This was a group of people who didn't have a lot, but they continually gave to Paul. Now, that was on a fourth journey. I call it a fourth journey because he wanted to go to Rome and he actually went, but it was as a prisoner. Interesting thing here, Paul goes on one journey, he writes one book. He goes on a second journey, writes two books. Goes on a third journey, writes three books. Fourth journey is a prisoner to Rome, during which he writes four books. Pretty cool. Now, as I said, the book of Acts ends, and we're left to piece it together. Here's what most believe happened. After his release, most believe he was released from that imprisonment. Probably the guys from Jerusalem never came. The charges were dropped and he was released. And during that time, Paul went to the island of Crete with Titus, spent some time with Titus on the island doing evangelism, ministry, and then left and wrote Titus a little book, a letter called Titus. For this reason, I left you in Crete in order that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. Namely, if any man be above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe. And in chapter 2, hey Titus, I want you to teach the older men to live like this, and the older women to live like this, so they can teach the younger women to live like this. I want the younger men to live like this, and I want slaves to live like this. Why? Because the grace of God has appeared. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and unrighteousness, and to pursue holiness. Looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of our great God and Savior. And in chapter 3, I want you to remind them all, Timothy or Titus, in relation to an unbelieving world, you urge them to be considerate of all men. Because we ourselves once were foolish. And the only reason we've been saved is because of God's kindness and grace shown to us. Titus is three little chapters. You can read it in 10 minutes. It's a great little book. One of the common themes throughout these three little chapters is good deeds, good deeds, good deeds, good deeds. Titus teach this group of believers to live out their faith, to be a light on this island. It then appears that he came to Ephesus for some time and spent time with Timothy, who's now the leader in the church in Ephesus. And then he left, went on to Macedonia, and from there he wrote Timothy a letter. We know it as 1 Timothy. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So during that release, he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. <laughs> then Paul goes back to prison. We don't know this, but many believe it may have been in Troas that he was arrested. Taken back to prison in Rome, this time a much harsher imprisonment. Probably a hole in the ground. And Paul knows he's about to die. And winter is coming. And he doesn't have many friends with him anymore. And he's urging Timothy to come as quickly as he can. 
given it away, but from this final imprisonment, Paul writes his final letter, 2 Timothy. It's four little chapters. Chapter 1. Kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, but of power and love and discipline. Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the sake of the gospel. Verse 12, for I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard either what I've entrusted to him or what he's entrusted to me. The interpreters go both ways. This gospel that's been entrusted to you, retain the standard of sound words which you've heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure that has been entrusted to you. You're aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. The Lord grant mercy, though, to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. There's chapter one theme. Don't be ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Onesiphorus is not ashamed. Chapter two, verse one. Therefore, you, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You be like a soldier. You be like a farmer. You be like an athlete. You be like a workman. You be like the Lord's bondservant. In chapter 3, don't wait around, Timothy, for things to get easier because they're not gonna. Evil men will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you've learned and become, and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, that from childhood you've known the sacred writings, which are able to give you wisdom leading to the knowledge of Christ. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. The man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Chapter 4, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. You, however... Endure hardship. Be sober-minded. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Why? For the time of my departure has come. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, Timothy, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Whenever I think about 2 Timothy, I think about the 4 by 100 meters relay. When that first guy takes off and he's running, and then he yells out, Stick! And he reaches out that baton, and the next guy reaches back to grab it. He grabs it, and then he runs. Stick! And he reaches out, and the next guy reaches back. I think Second Timothy is Paul saying to him, Stick! I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished. It's your turn. 
And then the book closes. Come as quickly as you can. Bring the cloak which I left at Troas. Demas, having loved this present world, is gone. Crescens has gone over here. Titus has gone over here. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark. He's useful to me. And come before winter. Not long after he writes 2 Timothy, they will take him outside of Rome and chop his head off. Go home, read 2 Timothy tonight. Four chapters. 10 or 12 minutes. Just think. It's his last book. He knows it. He's in a hole. And winter's coming. I think it'll mean more to you. The non-Pauline letters were written by various authors, some to more general audiences. That's why these are often called the general epistles. And together they supplement Paul's teaching by offering additional perspectives on the richness of Christian truth and life. These are written by various authors. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote James. First and second Peter, written by the Apostle Peter. First, second, third John, written by the Apostle John. And then Jude, another half-brother of Jesus. Interesting, just a little side note. Whoever it was that gave names to the books in our Bible, when it came to the letters of Paul, they're named for their recipients. Romans, Philippians, Colossians, Titus. When it comes to these non-Pauline epistles or letters, they're named for their authors, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, except for Hebrews because we don't know who wrote it. Some of them are written to more general audiences. James addresses his letter to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Peter and 1st Peter. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. So these are Christians in churches that are just dispersed all throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. But not all of them are written to general audiences like that. It appears Hebrews was written to a specific church. Second John was written to a specific person. But anyway, together they, they complement all that we read of Paul. Most of us, when we think about our New Testament, we so quickly think of Paul and his letters. But these come alongside those, supplement those, complement those, to give us new perspective, another perspective on the Christian life. Number 19, Revelation is the final book of the Bible and records the vision of Jesus that John saw. Jesus' letters to the seven churches of John's day and the things that will take place in the future, most clearly the second coming of Jesus and the life everlasting for both the saved and the unsaved. In chapter 1, we get this vision of Jesus that John saw. And it's not gentle Jesus, meek and mild either. It's the risen, exalted, powerful 
king who is in heaven who will one day come again. We then get in chapters 2 and 3 these letters that Jesus addresses to these seven churches of John's day. John receives the revelation when he's in prison on the island of Patmos. And it is addressed to the believers that live in each of these cities. And in chapter 2 and 3, Jesus addresses each one of these cities to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Pergamum, to the church in Thyatira, to the church in Laodicea. And then chapters 4 all the way to the end of the book, as I see it, show us what's going to take place in the future. A coming seven-year tribulation, a rise of the Antichrist, but the second coming of Jesus Christ to defeat his enemies, establish his kingdom over all the earth, and eventually the eternal state after the great white throne judgment and those kind of things. But here's what I'd like to say about the book of Revelation. Lots of different folks have lots of different takes on the book of Revelation. You know that as well as I do. But whether you are a premillennialist, as I am, an amillennialist or postmillennialist, as others are, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, as premillennialist, amillennialist, postmillennialist are, you believe in two things very strongly. Number one, that Jesus Christ is coming back. This one who was the second person of the Trinity, who then took upon himself flesh, who, be, who became a man, who then lived a holy life and died a substitutionary death in our place and for our sins, and then who rose bodily from the grave and ascended into heaven, who is alive and well and reigns right now, he will one day come again. You believe that. And you also believe in the life everlasting for the saved and for the unsaved. For those who by God's grace have come to put their hope and trust in Jesus Christ, they will be with him forever. To those who've continued in their rebellion and not availed themselves of the mercy and the kindness and the grace and the forgiveness that can be found in Jesus Christ, an eternity separated from him. But all of God's purposes will be consummated in the book of Revelation. He will come again, judge his enemies, establish his kingdom, and reign forevermore. Finally, number 20, I think this is a good way to end. I learned this years and years ago. How do you get a good grip on your Bible? Quickly, first of all, you got to hear it. You got to put yourself into a great church that teaches the word of God and then avail yourself of the many opportunities we have just to hear the word of God written. That's a good idea, but you can't get a good grip on your Bible just that way. You've also got to read it for yourself. Sit down and read the book of Romans. Read the gospel of Matthew. Read the Bible. But even then, you can't get a good grip. You've also got to study it. What's the difference between reading and studying? I think of three P's, pen, paper, and pace, right? You get out a pen, you get out a piece of paper, and you slow down, and you begin to spend time in God's Word taking some notes as you go along. But even then, you can't get a good grip. You hear it, you read it, you study it, and you memorize. 
maybe some favorite verses, maybe some pertinent passages. For some of you, maybe even whole books of the Bible where you're just hiding up God's word in your head and in your heart. Put his word into your life that way. But even then you can't get a good grip. You have to also meditate. And they put this on the thumb because you meditate on what you hear, what you read, what you study, and what you memorize. And this isn't the kind of meditation where you seek to empty your mind. It's not that at all. Biblical meditation is you try to fill your mind with truth. You think on it. You ponder on it. You pray through it. Meditation. And then finally on the palm, you apply it. You seek to put God's word to work in your life so that by his spirit, you become more and more like Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. 20 sentences from Genesis all the way to Revelation. If you and I will give ourselves to the word of God, by the power of his spirit within us, not only can we become more and more like Jesus Christ as the years go by, but I think in turn we can be a blessing as we seek to do what Paul said to Timothy. Take the things you've learned and entrust them to others. Well, good. Well, if you have benefited from that, I know that in some ways, you know, we've kind of done a speed thing through this. But uh, I'm more than happy to give you a copy of the study guide. And so with the study guide is a code to this video where you can watch it at your own pace and you can fill in the blanks and you can work through it. Uh, if you would like that, you just contact me and I will order them and get you that. And then the only commitment I would say would just be that you're going to do something with it. So uh, maybe send me an email or, or something so I don't forget, but I'd be more than happy to get that. He's also got one on um, just Paul's missionary journeys. So uh, I think hopefully this was a, a helpful benefit to you. So that um, kicks us into the next part of this course where we'll be going into detail now. So now that you have an overview of scripture, we'll be jumping into uh, more how do you work through different sections of the Bible. So looking forward to next Sunday when John will take us into um, words, uh, sentences, paragraphs, and, and just units, and then we'll expand out from there. So God bless you all, and Lord willing, I'll see you next week. And feel free to come up and take a look at the scroll and everything else, too.